Hello and welcome to another season of Brewery Towns, the podcast that talks about brewing beer throughout the country. My name is Matt and we are going to start this season off a little bit differently. We sat down with Tia Edmondson-Morton, the curator of the Oregon Hops and Brewing Archives at Oregon State University, and it was a real treat. We discussed the history of brewing beer in that state and how it got to the point that it is at today. As always, keep up with the latest news and episode releases on Facebook and Instagram at Brewery Towns, and also check out our new website, brewerytowns.com. And now, another episode of Brewery Towns. Are those yeah. transcripts on the archives? Yeah, so we're that's part of our summer project um, is to so we have something called OMS, uh, the Oral History Metadata Synchronizer, and it's a um, a product that comes like a, it's like an uh, an oral history management product that's um, managed by the University of Kentucky. They have a, a really big oral history program there, and they released OMS I think maybe eight or eight years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago. And you can have the transcript, so you have the video file, and then you have the transcript, and then you have, um, you can do an index also or instead of a transcript. So we have students who work on indexing projects. It's a lot faster than transcribing. That's a long way of saying that on this guide that is up on the screen, on the Oval Oral Histories tab, we're going to have all of the interviews that have OMS entries linked straight from that guide. But we haven't done that yet. I would say maybe 15% of the interviews have transcripts, maybe 10%. It's definitely not as much as we'd like. Transcribing (laughs) is no fun. (laughs) 
the students get in, I, I, I have noticed, students get pretty into indexing. Like, I think indexing is easier for them, and it uses a different part of their brain. I think than transcribing, like there's actual, transcribing seems like it's more like you're just, you're an automaton. <laughs> um, and indexing, I think, allows them to be a bit more creative and a little bit more thoughtful. So you have students through uh, Oregon State working with yeah, you? Yeah, so I have, right now, I have two graduate students who work with me, and they've worked with me for, this is, they started spring term 2019. And I've had lots of interns <laughs> because uh, when you say, would you like to be an intern for a beer history archive, you get lots of yeses. There also just have been other students who are part of my department who need a project. And so that's the, the indexing is pretty nice because they can just drop into that if they're if like a shorter term. I did just have a library school um, practicum student who finished up last week and she was supposed to do, the entire thing was going to be to process collections because I have a backlog of um, collections to be processed. And it was a 16-week practicum, and she got two days on site. <laughs> so uh, so she did a lot of electronic records uh, processing. So, yeah, I, I do I get people who kind of pop in for projects or internships too. But usually I have at least one student who's dedicated to working with me. So do you and have the, do you have objects the, the too? Kind of. I think that when I started the archive, I thought it would be more traditional, like stuff in folders. I was certain that breweries kept meeting minutes. You know, like I, I thought that that was probably something that was pretty standard that they would do. So not so much. There are um, paper records, but then there are bottles, um, posters. The Widmer collection has this really fun set of ephemera, like super fun ephemera, like um, lots and lots of tap handles. At one point, they sponsored a NASCAR car, <laughs> and they, so there's like this little model of a NASCAR <laughs> with like on the back. So there are some objects. Um, I think the thing that, that really stood out to me when I started the archive, though, is that people who would be interested in this topic wanted to look at stuff. So um, they wanted to see things that were colorful and they wanted to take pictures. And so I think the kind of material culture aspect of brewing was something that stood out to me that I never would have guessed would be something that would become um, a major like facet of the collection. So there are labels, we have t-shirts, we have um, a cask from McMinimins, which is another um, Northwest Brewery that is like a wooden cask and they're really known for their art. We have the Pink Boot Society records and um, Terry Farndorf started the Pink Boot Society or took a trip in which she wore pink boots and then ultimately it was called the Pink Boot Society. So we have Terry's Pink Boots. So stuff like that. We do have some objects. We have a few bottles of beer, like actual beer, um, which was a pretty funny conversation when we... Um, <laughs> When I accessioned that in our, one of our, our collections archivists said to me, I just want to be clear, so are we archiving beer now? And I was like, no, 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 this is just a special case. And then the next time I was like, okay, this is a special case. <laughs> so yeah, we just keep that. Is, <laughs> can the public see this or is it just all uh, online or through like private so meetings? Was, under normal circumstances, yes, the public can see it. <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, a lot of people 
150 a couple years ago, and we did an open house for that. So there's a lot of just visually interesting stuff um, that's very colorful and really lends itself to public history, I think, in addition to that more kind of rigorous reading pieces of paper academic kind of history. I definitely have had quite a range of people who have used it. I think the, um, and, and honestly, over time, even over the past seven years, there are a lot more people who are doing academic beer history scholarship and more contemporary academic beer history scholarship. So when I started, OBA was the only archive of its kind. Like there just, there were corporate archives that had records related to the companies that where those corporate archives were. Um, and there were certainly beer history records in different places. It's not like they suddenly um, poofed out of, out of nowhere, but I had no peers essentially, even seven years ago. Um, so I think it's definitely, it's a field that's emerging and growing, which is, I think it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch. Um, you know, it's not just that people want to look at pre-prohibition 19th century German brewers, but now they are thinking about things like labor in the hop fields, you know, or, um, or certainly this entire situation that we're in is going to rewrite the chapter of, of American beer, I think, in its entirety. I mean, I think this is, yeah. But initially, it was also, my work was really focused on the archive that I was building, or um, Oregon, and then kind of the Pacific Northwest. So certainly for hops, the Northwest is where it's at as far as main production. So I kind of thought about the Northwest and not just Oregon. Do you think now that, I guess, back when you started this, you know, the Pacific Northwest was really leading the craft beer scene. Do you think now that the rest of the country has kind of caught up, do you see more of these archives popping up? You know, I think, I think that, I don't know. I don't, it's, it can feel a little chicken or egg. I think for the first, well, we got the Fred Eckert collection, I think in 2016. That was a big deal. Like that was the first big, like, oh, this is somebody who, Lots of people in the beer community know him. I had done an oral history with him, I think like two years before, a year and a half before. Um, and when he passed away, his papers came to us. And so I think that I did, like I said, I did a lot of talking when I first started and I, I would present anywhere. Like I presented at old folks' homes. I presented at festivals. I presented one time like at a bar where like they just put a sheet up and I broadcast my like presentation and like the sheet was wrinkled because they just like taken it out and like put it up in front of like the bottles that were behind the bar. So I literally would talk to anyone. Um, and I mean, that honestly has not changed. I think it's, it's fun to talk about. And so I still, I'm still like that. I don't talk at, to as many rest homes as I used to, but I think I, I think I gave presentations at like three. <laughs> so I, I was, yeah, I talked a lot. And I think so part of there was this growth in, in craft. And at the time that I started, Bridgeport and Widmer and Portland Brewing were, those were the three main earliest historic breweries. And they were all still open. And they, they had, you know, ownership had changed a little bit. But the Widmers is a great example of they were part owned by Anheuser-Busch. Like they, Anheuser-Busch had a, I think 
think like 25% ownership. But I think when the Wigmers retired and then they fully sold now um, to Anheuser-Busch, I think because I had been talking and showing up so much, then it, I think it's, it, it seemed like a really natural thing for the Widmers themselves to contact me and say, can, basically, can you come get our stuff? Like, I think they, they knew that as the company changed hands and we went through, even before the COVID-19 shutdowns, we went through a really pretty terrible, um, like bleak fall here in Oregon and lots of breweries were closing. Like it was, it felt like every week something was happening. And so Bridgeport closed, Widmer closed their tap room or their restaurant, Portland Brewing closed their tap room. So I think there was a lot of like these really kind of um, foundational companies were either going through really, really major restructuring or closing entirely. I think it was, it was good timing. I think my timing was good. And I think, you know, part of, part of what, that good timing is, is that when I started, I think a lot of people were like, wait, who are you? Like, what are you, like, what are you doing? Like, what, do you just want free beer? I mean, it was that kind of like, are you a journalist? Are you like a groupie? Like, what's your, like, what, what's your deal, lady? And so I think now, like I said, people know who I am and I think it's, um, they know that this archive exists and has been around for a long time. So I think there's, there's kind of a, a credibility to it. I don't, I don't know that I actually answered your question. I think it was, it, for me, it was also the benefit of being at a university that does this research. So I think there was kind of wrapped into that legitimacy and the popularity and really high quality, um, of beer in the Northwest. I think it was, it, it has been sort of good timing, but also a lot of other people who have done a lot of good work adjacent <laughs> to me. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody has asked me to, uh, do beer science experiments yet. So I'm sure Hopefully it's coming. <laughs> do you see a lot of brewers come in and use the, the archives? start a brewery and so they kind of wanted to see like what was happening again in the sort of early like early 1980s like that that phase they were curious if there was stuff related to like the sort of decisions that they made or even just thinking about how people were talking about it and where different breweries were opening so we have things like guidebooks like that like they're that are super out of date like guidebooks are out of date the second that you print them but these are from like so like they wanted to look at those kind of materials i think more earlier on the biggest users were um journalists i mean you say that there's a beer archive at a university and it's pretty it's pretty flashy like it's it's something that people are like what so yeah so lots of journalists early on it journalists are just it's very different than than working with academics. I'm trying to think of other people that would be more kind of company sort of people. It feels now like it's sort of split between journalists and academics. <laughs> the biggest shift though recently that's happened is there's this beer history class that um, started in winter of 2020. And um, there was one, one section of the beer history class. It 
maxed at like 49 students, I think, filled up. And the class was being taught by somebody who I knew, and he has done a lot of, he did tastings and does beer tourism stuff. And so he, and has, has, is a, a, a historian as well. So he designed this course and it's Mesopotamia to microbrews. So it's like, it's like the range of history. And I said, we have basically nothing about Egypt. Like we have basically nothing about labor unions and breweries. Like we, we just don't have it. What I did with my graduate student, Lance, um, and I made this beer research guide. And initially it was just going to be a class guide. Like that was the idea is like, I'll have some stuff about how to do library research. I'll have some stuff about, um, some of the archives that I know. And then it just sort of like, it, it literally has taken on a life of its own. So we, this, this is the most recent iteration. We just added craft brewing as a tab today. So it's definitely, if you look at this tomorrow, it'll probably be different, but it became a really like sort of all encompassing guide to doing beer research. A lot of the stuff was just, I didn't know how to do it. So I, I figured if I didn't know how to find statistics, then students probably wouldn't know how to find statistics. So I would figure it out and then I would write it up and then I would put it on the guide. It has definitely become more than just a student guide over spring term so we went the university closed went to remote only for finals week and then spring break happened and then spring term happened so everyone had to flip their classes in a week so a lot of that kind of that flipping over spring break one of them was this beer research or this beer history class and it was going up to two sections (laughs) so it was 70 students in two sections so I beefed this up, but then I started doing these scholar interviews because, again, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm an archivist. I'm on the West Coast. I don't know a whole lot about how to do Irish history research. So I started doing these scholar interviews. And then throughout the term, as I would talk to students, I added more resources. I did a survey of the students at the end of the term, and they were like, we love this guide. There's too much on each tab. So now it's like, so, so they, but then like each tab has to become more. So a couple days ago, I was researching how to research colonial beer cocktails. So that <laughs> like, I don't know anything about colonial beer cocktails. The shift, I think, of my work, even over the past um, six months or so, has really kind of focused on this class. They have another, there's another section, another class, starts next week there's a sprint course um, for the, the class so four days a week for a month and I'll do the same thing like drop in and talk to them but I, I think point I, 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 am, I am very happy to have this guide because with a closed university <laughs> and no collections for people to look at and no really it's hard for people to get books I think that there's so much online content has been it was a, a stroke of luck that I did this over winter break for a winter class not knowing what's coming this class will have three sections fall term <laughs> yeah it will keep growing but it's it's cool i think it's made me certainly it's broadened my understanding about beer research yeah i, I think people are just like really hungry for this information uh now that i know of this i'm going to use it for some of our episodes because like you said you, i mean you have to just kind of go all over the place to get some of this stuff from the internet yeah 
So thank yeah, you. And I think, I think one thing that, and I just keep telling people, like, tell me if you want something else on it. Because, like, I mean, I'm a librarian by training. So I, like, it, it is, it warms my heart to just find lists of citations. Like, if I could just do that. <laughs> yeah, so this has definitely, yeah, it's it has, uh, it has taken over a bit of my life. The other thing that's taken over a bit of my life is the census. I'm obsessed uh, with the census. And I was obsessed earlier on with newspapers, like historic newspapers. But I'm reading the census very slowly. I'm now, I've read the 1850 census, the 1860 census, just for Oregon, not for the entire uh, U.S. And now I'm reading the 1870 census. And that has informed a lot of the, this kind of the work that I've done as it relates to pre-prohibition um, brewers. And I really, again, as a librarian and an archivist, I'm very, very frustrated by um, the mythology, in a way, of a lot of beer history. I think that's part of why I keep expanding this guide and deepening this guide, is because I want people to do really good scholarship around this, but this is, it's a fun thing that's kind of flashy to talk about, but it's also, um, I don't want people to be sloppy about it. This is uh, my daughter and my great-great-great-great-grandma, uh, Euphania Shrum. This is when we used to go places. Remember when we used to go and there were crowds of people? Seems like so long um, ago. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And, and I now I, and I'm like, oh my gosh, the people are just walking like there's nothing happening. So my family's been in Oregon for a long time. This is, um, like I said, my great-great, I think it's four greats. Grandma Euphania Shrum, and she is the first in my direct line to come to Oregon. She came here in 1846, and her husband, John Edmondson, came here in 1850. And so my daughter is the first since Euphania to not be born in Oregon. <laughs> and she came here when she was, we came back when she was nine months old. This is certainly, I knew that I was, um, descended from people who had been here for a long time. I, I didn't know or hadn't really kind of absorbed the meaning of this is that my family's, I think it's her grandsons, grew hops. And I grew up in Eugene, which is about 45 minutes to an hour south of where I am now. So they grew hops in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They were farmers and they were farmers for a very long time. They all, my parents still live within I don't know, five or six miles of where these these people originally settled in Oregon, in the Eugene area. But farming had no role in my life. Like, uh, my dad's dad died um, when he was in high school, and they sold the farm, and he became a journalist, and then became a lawyer. And so, like, this was, it was never a part of my life. But I think when I started the archive um, and started learning more, this kind of place became really important to me. This idea of place history became really important to me. And in many ways, I'm very unique that there aren't a lot of people who are from here. <laughs> there are there are some of us. Um, but I think it, it occurred to me that this was very, um, it, it became very personal. So even though I, I do grow hops in my backyard, I can see them now from my window, which, you know, normally at work, I can't see my hops from my window. 
I think I became very committed to the story of Oregon beer, kind of for personal reasons, and just that it's it's such a place-based thing. And so I, I think, you know, you hear brewers talk about why they do um, what they do now, and it, it, it can be connected to this, like, the water is amazing. Um, we do grow barley in the east side of the state, but, you know, the, the main hop growing region is really um, very close to where I am. Not in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, so I think that I think the again the sort of story of this state, how alcohol came here, is really interesting. And I I, I wrote this article for the Oregon Encyclopedia, um, which fingers crossed will actually come out soon. <laughs> um, it's been a year in the making. But one thing that they pushed me um, to learn more about, and I did over the past couple of months, is the kind of earlier fermentation or alcohol in this Oregon Territory area. So Oregon Territory went up into Washington. So we had this this larger than just where the state was. You know, fur traders came over and were trading um, with Native Americans and they traded something called Blue Ruin, which sounds terrible. Um, I know it's distilled, so <laughs> it maybe is a spirit. But there was this, this settlement um, so the Oregon Territory was certainly settled and taken. And fur traders set up their outposts. Fort Vancouver was settled, and they imported beer and did have some, they had they have some ability, there's some evidence that they were making beer and thinking about distributing it as early as like the 18, late 1820s. So 1829, there's a missionary who talks about beer and thinking about exporting it in a small quantity, but really until the, the state's population of white settlers really increases a lot in the 1850s. The places, the, the sort of Portland, um, southern Oregon, some up along the coast, kind of where you would be near water, that's where a lot of the early settlements, the white settlers settled in Oregon. Hops and, and beer kind of arrived at the same time here. There wasn't like one didn't lead to the other, and there's no evidence that, like, it's like, oh, hops grow here, so let's make beer, too. Like, that that, that doesn't, there doesn't need to be any link there. I think a lot of the, not surprisingly, a lot of the early brewers were um, German, but there also were a lot of people, the early, early brewers, who were from England and France and Switzerland, and I think part of that is just based on where country lines were drawn, so they could have the people who were from Switzerland could also have been what, like what is now Germany. So I think there's there's some. I don't want to make it sound like there were. It was a really diverse crowd of Europeans. Um, I think for the most part they were German. Do you and, do any research um, into what the Native Americans might have been drinking? I have not, and that's something that again I, I haven't quite figured out the corner to pull on that to figure out. How to, how to do that. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I know that just from the ingredients in the area, it was probably more likely that they were drinking spirits of some sort just because apples grow here and pears. Um, I don't know if you could make... In this area, there was a lot of camas root, camas flowers, and I don't know if, if, I don't know if you could make beer out of that or make, make a, a liquor out of that. Other things that would be here would be, like, I, I almost feel like there would be styles 
that would be kind of similar to Finnish styles with like spruce tips or spruce beer. But yeah, that's one that I haven't. I, that was something that the um, the Oregon Encyclopedia editors wanted me to know more about, and I was like, this article is already twice as long as you want it to be. Like, trust me, you do not want me doing more research. <laughs> it's that's def- but that's one that I do want to know more about. Yeah, just from yeah. doing our episodes, I, I there's like really nothing online that talks about what they were drinking in certain regions. Yeah, I feel like it's that would be one of those like I need to do a lot of pre-research to even know what it is that I'm looking for. You know, like I I think that yeah yeah the records period from that time like in the early Oregon Territory period are not great. <laughs> You know, 1890, we start getting better about actually having, um, I don't know, maybe they disintegrated. It's so wet. I'm surprised you even um, knew about the monastery that was attempting to make beer. I mean, that's pretty impressive in the 1820s. Yeah, and the, well, I think it was, you know, the once the fort was settled, so there was Fort Vancouver and there's one that's north. It was all part of the Hudson Bay Company. Like, they were they were settling along the coast. And so of course people needed to have alcohol because it's a long way to get stuff here from anywhere else. Yeah, I I don't think they were making it in any quantity that would have been commercial, you know? Like I think it was, there just weren't enough people. And they probably would have imported some spirits. I think that was probably easier to transport. Um, Yeah, just knowing what the terrain is like here. But they did, once those those brewers started to settle early to mid-1850s, and, and once you started seeing newspaper ads, newspaper ads are definitely the, the source for telling what kinds of styles. They were definitely making um, lager um, and steam beer. There are lots of ads for steam beer. They But they, they advertised making porter. They um, <laughs> One of my favorites is, flat beer they, like they I, so I don't know I don't know if they were making cask ale like I don't know what like what flat beer would be Philadelphia triple x ale double x cream triple x ale like that there I, I had a student for a, a term who was trying to figure out if there was like a, a northwest style like an early northwest style because we weren't going to find any recipes but if we could find a style there was no I mean like there were lots of styles there was no like northwest Oregon early style which kind of I mean, it kind of makes sense. There, the places where settlement happened in the in the state were primarily in gold rush towns, logging communities. There were some urban areas that that were kind of developing at the same time. So Portland was developing at the same time as Jacksonville was developing at the same time as Oregon City, which is where the Oregon Trail ended, um, and is really close to Portland. But it's really, really hard in Oregon to figure out how many breweries there were. And I think as somebody who wants, if I'm going to make historical fact statements, I want them to be very, very correct. And it's very frustrating that I I can't be correct. (laughs) So I can say with relative confidence that between 1854 and 1916, which is when we had Prohibition, that there were between 92 and 125 licensed breweries. But a lot of times the only evidence is um, an ad in a newspaper. So that's what what this is. 
is an ad for Charles Barrett's Portland Brewery and Grocery Establishment, and he sold lots of things besides beer. And I'm 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 curious, and I'm not entirely sure that I will ever be able to solve this particular riddle, whether he was actually brewing or not. I think that because he has titled it as a brewery, I think he probably was. I don't think there was any, there was no benefit to titling it as a brewery as opposed to a saloon. This general grocery establishment, though, there were different, like, taxes paid based on whether you had if you have a grocery, you pay less in taxes. So there is a benefit to calling it a grocery. But he sold a lot of other stuff too. So he was selling merchandise. It's clear that he was selling merchandise for a town that at that time was, um, it was a port town. So people were going into Oregon, up the coast, but also lots of transportation between San Francisco and Oregon, or in, in Portland at this time. The southern coast of Oregon. There was that there was a stop off there. So there was there were some breweries that grew there later. Reputed first brewer in Oregon was Henry Saxer in eighteen fifty two, even though I'm not sure that he was even in Oregon then. So it's my favorite because I like to dispel those myths. But Eric became a bookseller and was much more known for being a bookseller um, throughout his life and he became really rich and he had a daughter who ran the business with him in the 1870 census. She's listed as being a bookseller and he's listed as being a bookseller. And that's right before he died. I think he died in 1872. But she got married and her husband left her and took her money. And she followed him to San Francisco and saw him drive by with his new girlfriend and shot him in the nether region. And went to what um, what we call rich lady prison, which means that she just went for a little while, and then came back here and like set up a school and like had like like was the sort of like then rich redeemed woman. But it's it's, it's a fascinating story. It's very uh, salacious too, and so I like that. <laughs> yeah, I like all the all the um, stories that come from like all the offshoot stories that come from these breweries. It's almost oh, more, it's yeah. almost more interesting yeah. than than the breweries themselves. And her name was something like Zarifra, and she was born in Peru, and they came from England and they stopped in Peru, and then they left her in Peru, and then at some point they like had her sent up to California. I mean, it's just this very like it's it sounds very uh, salacious, very salacious. <laughs> so Saxer is the first. Uh, the, the person that most people cite as being the first brewer in Oregon. I haven't actually found any original documentation that he opened in 1852. There were um, the Oregonian paper, I think dates to like 1851 or 1852. There are no ads. This is the first ad, 1856, and he opened it with Lewis Behrens, who he ran this brewery with him for a few years and then went down to Eugene. Lewis Behrens went to Eugene and set up um, one of the first breweries in Eugene. Saxer moved to Idaho and then came back and opened a wine depot. And then his health was really terrible. And so he went back to Switzerland um, and died in Switzerland. But he and his wife had tons of property still in Portland. So when he died, his obituary was run in the papers here. And then there were, of course, lots of the state lawsuit things that were um, related to his wife having property here. But it's a it's a frustrating thing to try to correct. It's definitely one, yeah, 
like my reason for being is to try to like tell everyone that Henry Saxer was his first. But people don't want their stuff misspelled. <laughs> so most of the breweries in Oregon were not big, which is not surprising. There are it's kind of a, a range. There were a lot that produced like five hundred barrels. Um, it certainly was the case that there were uh, a lot of breweries or people who were identifying as brewers in the census records who were not owning and didn't have their names on breweries. So I'm not sure, again, how that fits into the records. Were they just identifying as brewers? Did they have companies that weren't recorded in licenses? You know, post-prohibition, we certainly had a lot more restriction and tracking. Pre-prohibition, not as much. So this kind of lower end 500 barrels in like the you know 1880s that was a small amount. Um, and how many? Then, how much beer was in a barrel? Like what's the quantity if you had to oh, compare I it to something? Know. Yeah, I don't know either. Like how many gallons? What the translation would be? Right. I feel like it's more than a keg, and there were a lot of coopers here, so there were coopers who were making barrels. It's hard to tell, though, honestly. I mean, there'll be pictures of barrels. If they're not in front of actual breweries, then I think they can I mean barrels used for lots of stuff. I don't know if there's a standard size. Like, that's a good question. Like, if a pickle barrel is the same size as a beer barrel. I was hoping if anyone would know, you would. Oh, man. Now I want to know. Now I'm going to make a note. <laughs> well, let me know if you find anything. I will. So 3,000, 4,000, that was a pretty large production. They often would have a saloon. So you see the saloon. They also would have, may have horse stables. They maybe would have a kiln. They might have an ice house. Usually they didn't have, most of the smaller breweries, like this Pacific brewery, were, uh, they, they wouldn't have bottling. They were, most of them, I think, were not bottling um, as an early that they that wasn't part of what they were um, what they what their deal was they were they weren't transporting a lot so it was a lot of local sales probably in their saloon but certainly throughout other restaurants or businesses in the towns oh and this is a Sanborn map which is like one of my I don't love Sanborn maps like I love the census records because I I love them visually but I they're also really hard to browse like you really you have to have a lot of patience to <laughs> to try to read Sanborn maps um, but once you they can give you a lot of detail we did a whole survey of how many ice houses there were and like whether you know there was any link between how big um, a, a brewery was and whether there was an ice house or whether they had adjacent ice houses yeah, so I, I love the Sanborn maps. And they'll, they'll just give you lots of really cool information about who was, which businesses or whether there were houses next to breweries, which, of course, becomes a bigger deal when we start talking about prostitution and social hygiene and these concerns about vice um, and the location of, of breweries and drinking establishments. So here's some of my these favorite... Um, titles, the triple X ale, the steam beer, you'll often see in ads information about who the owner is, usually not the brewer though. And this was something that was really surprising to me 
is that the people who owned, for the most part, weren't the brewers. And so John Cobb, I think, was a brewer, but by this point, there were other brewers who were making beer for the Pacific Brewery in Astoria. You'll also see stuff like where you can place orders. So if the brewery isn't open, you could place an order next door, um, or this kind of like language about all orders being promptly attended to. And it, it's sort of funny now to think about one way that Portland brewers during the, the, um, the shutdown, well, they're still shut down, but one of the ways that they made it was to do this kind of delivery. Like they were driving around and delivering to people. So it's this like, this stands out to me now in a way that it didn't when I gave this talk in February. <laughs> On this Mason's ad um, that we're looking at, it's interesting that it says ale, beer, and porter. And Mason's is an awesome too because Mason's was based in, the, the Mason's Steam Brewery was based in um, California. So I'm not, it, it, I think they probably had, yeah, it's a company that I almost wonder, like, were they trying to reach different customers where they use in the same language like what was the the sort of suggestion of triple x ale beer and corridor like well it meant something you know that they're they're selling this as extra fine steam beer or you know that this this was meaningful in a way that i think unless we find diaries of people writing about the ads that they were reading it's not really mentioned in articles about breweries like when they talk about breweries opening it's not they're not necessarily talking about describing what extra fine meant or what um the difference between somebody a brewery that produced ale versus porter like what the like what that signified i love ads and again the only way that we know what they were producing maltana this is the sort of nod to temperance brew and I'll, I'll have a bit more about how other people, other breweries adapt it, but I love this kind of marketing um, as a style. So this was 1908, so before Prohibition in Oregon, the North Pacific Brewery in Astoria was marketing this um, near beer or this this like version, but Maltana. I just, again, I love the ads. Guaranteed non-intoxicating, don't worry. Everybody likes it, even the children. Even the children. So Henry Weinhardt is definitely the biggest name in Oregon beer lore, and rightfully so. He was in a class of his own. His brewery was certainly in way larger and produced way more and distributed way more than any other brewery in Oregon. He's an interesting guy, and I, I think, again, there's a lot of, there's not a whole lot of, hard evidence about him and so it's it's people definitely reading what they want to into the stories um about him and his work and his brewery and the the kind of implications again of he he was part of the the sin problem in portland um and vice and prostitution and gambling so he was born in in germany came in 1852 and he um learned how to brew in stuttgart and then Kind of worked his way across the country. He lived in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Missouri. He had a, a hiccup in Sacramento before coming up. It's clear he sailed up, and so it's it's clear that he had money. Like he, when he came from Ohio, he went down through Panama and up and around. And that I think was the the people who did that 
definitely had extra money. So he came here with money. He came here with with resources. He settled in, in initially in Vancouver in 1856 and kind of bounced back and forth across the border. Part of it was that that early that Fort Vancouver that I was talking about, where they were exploring their uh, their beer in the 1820s. He was he he was set up in Vancouver, which is where Fort Vancouver was, to sell to soldiers there. And then, of course, when the Civil War started, um, a lot of soldiers moved away from Fort, Fort Vancouver. And so that was the time that he, again, was kind of bouncing back and forth across the border between Oregon and Washington. He, it was like every six months or so he bounced back and forth, which I guess is a like, I don't know, it, it seems like a weird thing to move businesses, but I'm old and he wasn't. So <laughs> he married Louisa Wagonblast, and this is Louisa. And I, to say that I am obsessed with Louisa is like, I have her picture on my desk. <laughs> I regrettably do not actually have this portrait um, and this portrait. That's from his obituary, but there's one where he looks like that. These are two portraits that are hang, or they're they're stored at Portland Community College right now. And I was supposed to go pick them up like the week that everything shut down. So eventually, Louisa's portrait will be in the archives. Um, but I'm I am I wrote an article about Louisa. I also have emailed her great 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 granddaughter who is didn't know what Louisa looked like. So it was kind of thrilling to be able to share this this kind of personal history with somebody who didn't know a whole lot about the women in her family. Um, it's definitely, the Weinhardt story is definitely a story of the men, and the women were really important in the success of the company, due in large part to who they married, honestly. <laughs> Not because they were brewers, but they, um, they made some good matches. Louisa was also born in Germany, and she moved to Missouri in 1847 and came across her brother, um, her oldest brother, she was one of the youngest of 13 kids, I think. Her mom died when she was really young, and then they moved, half the family moved to Oregon, I mean, to, to Missouri. And her brother came across the Oregon Trail with the guy who, who um, had settled the Aurora Colony, which is this intentional religious community, but he wasn't part of it. He just, like, came with them. So she, so he came across on the Oregon Trail. She had something health-wise that prevented her. So again, they had enough money that they, she sailed um, up to, to Oregon. She's, she is, I think, again, the sort of counter to the lore. And this is something that's really important, that these were family businesses, and it's important to complicate the story in my mind about how... Um, the involvement of women and what the, their role was in brewing. I think we want them to have been brewing, and there's not a whole lot of evidence of that. But she was really involved in her community, really involved in her church, really involved in early social services. And the reason that her portrait is at this um, building in, um, in Portland is because she donated the land and money to build an, a German old people's home called Altenheim. And donated a lot of land so that they could have this German old people's home. Um, and now they don't want to hang her picture because she looks too dour. That's what they told me is that she, she makes the people feel bad. I'm like, she's just telling you not to screw off. She's really, she's quite stern. <laughs> so do you think, um, um, you know, like the Weinhardt's, was it Weinhardt Brewery? It was once he 
he had partners at different stages. And then it was, I think, in like the early 1870s, 1870, 1871, that was when he became the sole proprietor. So it was the city brewery for a while, and then it became the wine brewery. You can see this is just 10 years apart how the complexity um, and the, the span of this brewery. So they actually had, it's called the Brewery Blocks now in Portland. And he had operations on different blocks. It was so large. And their house was there too. They had a house that was just on the, the kind of other side of the brewery. It was just, it was huge. It was a huge um, operation. He died in 1904. His son-in-laws, he had two son-in-laws. One of them was a brewmaster and the other was like essentially the CFO. They merged with the Blitz Brewery and became Blitz Weinhardt. And the Wessinger family, so one of his his son-in-laws was named Wessinger. The Wessinger family was involved until the brewery was shut down. It was sold to lots of different companies and then Miller shut the facility down, bought it and then shut it down in 1999. And so that whole area at that time was a very, very industrial and it was just, it was an, it was a hard industrial area. Now it's very, very shishi. <laughs> it's very, very fancy. <laughs> there are things like, like there's a Madewell clothing store, like in the brewery, like the, the block, there was a restaurant there that was in kind of near where the, um, the big tower for the, the malt, um, the, where the malting happened, I think. And then they closed too, they, the restaurant closed, I think like a year ago. There are still remnants. You do, you, there is still Weinhardt, definitely. The, the area has changed a lot. Um, and I don't think they will tear this down, but they definitely have added a lot of fancy shishi stuff around it. Do you notice uh, with a lot of the breweries, is it usually the last name of the owner or like, is it like City Brewery or the other one was like Liberty Brewery? I think both. So I'm thinking about the early breweries. Like I think the Liberty Brewery was also called Faxer's Brewery. The City Brewery was also called Weinhardt's Brewery. So I think, I think early on they would call something the City Brewery. Now, definitely not. Like I, I think. It would be, I mean, I guess the Widmers and I guess McKinnaman. So I say definitely, and then like I give examples of how. Yeah, I don't, I don't think. I mean, if I think about those early, the Eagle Brewery was one in Jacksonville. Sometimes it would be named after cities: Roseburg Brewery, Bandon Brewery, and I guess the Astoria Brewery. The North Pacific sort of is a location. <laughs> like it's. It is on the North Pacific coast of Oregon. That's a good question, though. I wouldn't say always. I wouldn't say never. Transportation it was something that I became really interested in, in the, like, why certain areas grew in terms of having numbers of breweries and why they didn't. So there were a lot of breweries that were very scattered in these small towns for a long time. And so I I was I was trying to figure out whether that had to do with industry development or contraction. And so like not having mining. There is evidence of the railroad certainly having a big impact um, on where railroad stops were. So as the, the 
expanded, it came down the Willamette Valley, so Portland, Eugene, down into Ashland and into California and Sacramento, like those are all on the same line essentially. And so a lot of the kind of contraction of the industry, it really comes in much more into the the, um, Willamette Valley. And we still see that if you look at maps, if you exclude Bend, because Bend is its own, that is an outlier as far as Central Oregon beer is an outlier. But it's now pretty much concentrated on the western side of the state. But in the early years, like I said, they're down in Jacksonville and Southern Oregon along the the kind of southwest coast. Heading into the southeast corner of Oregon, they it, it was they were all industries that were pretty competitive with each other, or all areas that were pretty competitive. Once the the railroad comes in, that just it changes everything. Breweries start getting a lot bigger. They start being able to transport their beer, um, not in horse-drawn carriages <laughs> um, or wagons, but with actual trains with refrigerated cars. And so you see ice houses and ice stations being owned by breweries too. So that becomes another part of the business. They start selling things like supplies as well as beer. Proximity to railroad locations becomes something that's a selling point. The Columbia Brewery, which was in the Dalles, like the selling point was that you could get off the train and then go drink and then go get back on the train. Like that they were selling it as like a pit stop for people who were traveling on the train. So these these networks really helped brewers move product, but it's also the sort of fascinating brewer network. So brewers moved around themselves and the, their, you know, Henry did that little jog across the border, um, but there were other brewers who, the Godfrey Mail is one that I think of, and he was in Roseburg and he was in Bandon. He traveled around that kind of South Coast area, settling in different places. So people weren't, they, they took their trade with them when they moved places. And a lot of these were family businesses. They either were run, there would be like a son would own a, a saloon and the dad would own a brewery or like the, these, these were relatively small and family businesses. These are two of my favorite ladies and they were married to brewers. The, the woman on the left with the plant, that's Frederica Vetterer. And she had her obituary in the Oregonian, so she was one of the Jacksonville brewers, or she she was married to a brewer, he died, he left her super in debt, her dad um, bailed her out, and then she married one of their, the brewer, and then they closed the brewery some years later, um, but she was a big enough deal that she had her obituary in the Portland paper. It is literally the worst picture of anyone that I've ever seen. So she's very, she's like, she's a lovely woman standing here with her plant. It, it was the first picture of one of these women that I found. And she looks like Iron Man. Like she looks like, I'm like, where did you even get this picture? This is horrible. So not only is it like the worst picture, she also doesn't have her name. Like it, she doesn't, her first name is not in her entire obituary. She is. Mrs. Joseph Vetter, and then she's Mrs. William Healy. And that was part of the driving force of why I became really concerned about and interested in this. That, um, again, these were family.
families and women were running probably the business. They were also running the house. They were having involvement in the, the community. You know, they were involved in churches. The woman on the right with the parents is also a terrific story. She ran the Grants Pass Brewery with her husband. Her name is Marie Kindland. They moved here from Minnesota, set up this brewery, and they had tons of land. And he signed the brewery over to her and also signed all this land over to her. So they had they have lots of money. He died, and then she had to so then like his wife and kids show up. So he had left his family in Minnesota and said that Marie was his wife. And so she had to pay his widow who he was legally married to, $7,000, which in, in 1891, 1900s, I mean, that's, it's a lot of money. So she, she paid the $7,000. There, there was one newspaper, I've never been able to actually confirm this, that said that she had a brewing degree from an East Coast, um, from the New York Brewers Association, which probably was like a correspondence course if she took it. I, like, it's like one of those things where someone's like, she had a brewing degree. And it's like, well, okay, it's like, where, where did you find that? She married Eugene Kindland's nephew, who was 19 years younger than her. He left her, and she was very, very famous for walking around Grant's house with these two parrots. So she would walk around downtown with these two parrots. We hope you are enjoying our conversation with Tia Edmondson-Morton, the curator of the Oregon Hops and Brewing Archives at Oregon State University. If you like what you are listening to and would like to donate, please visit our new Patreon account at patreon.com brewerytowns. You can join our monthly membership club or just give a one-time donation. We fully appreciate all the support that you guys have been giving us thus far. And now, back to the interview. Smaller than I was in, uh, imagining. It wasn't a given that breweries had saloons, um, but a lot of them did have saloons. And and this whoops, this starts to play in to this concern about brewers and, and, and vice. So brewers, there was a, a profitability to having a contract with a saloon, but the problem was that sometimes the saloon owners then couldn't pay the contract. So they did this... They, they kind of slowly, brewers would just buy saloons. It was just better business for them to buy saloons. Often, then, they had some say in the saloons. So the German saloons were 
all reported as being really well lighted. Um, and then the Irish saloons were the dark corners where there probably were prostitutes. Um, and so there's this, this like, I think this interesting perspective on what is essentially the same thing. So they're still selling alcohol, but one seemed like a dangerous spot and one seemed like a less dangerous spot. Obviously, prostitution happened. It's not like prostitution didn't happen. There's not a whole lot of evidence, though, certainly in Portland, that prostitution was sort of happening in the same spot that the saloons was. I don't know. There's a whole lot of evidence that respectable women wouldn't go into saloons. And so any women who were there had to be women of ill repute. Yeah. So I think there's this, there's, again, a lot. I don't, I don't know tons about prostitution in Oregon, but they're, they certainly are merged together in the language of the moral hygienists um, who were railing against any establishment that would welcome women because certainly they were combination houses where you would buy alcohol on the floor, the bottom floor, and then go up and there would be prostitutes above. Like certainly that's the only thing that could be happening. It's a sort of, it's, it's an, again, another one of those threads that I would be interested in pulling more on because I think there's, there's a lot going on there about the opportunities that women had and didn't have and the judgment of women who needed to, were single and had, you know, sometimes had very young children and had to make a living doing lots of different things. So I think there's, that's, it's an interesting thing that has intersected certainly with my work. And so when I'm reading the census, I'm reading for brewers, but I'm also marking down every prostitute that I find (laughs) or doubtful. Sometimes they're just called doubtful because, you know, it's doubtful that they're, clearly it's doubtful that they're, are uh, pure women. Big deal here. And I feel like I always need to make my nod to hops. This is one of my favorite pictures ever because it's beautiful. It's a, a large, if you saw the entire thing, you would see this, this expanse of hop fields. This is from a hop field day, and it's part of the agricultural land grant university that you do research, and then you host these field days for farmers to come or for chemical company agents to come or whoever to come and ask questions about the research work. So I love this picture for that reason. I also love it because there's a woman wearing heels in a hop field walking with her black dress. And as someone who actually did try to wear heels in a hop field once, I can tell you that like she's making a really good go of it. So it's not, hops are not something that are called out explicitly in, in advertisements or really connected other than saying that something is a bohemian hop calling it out as extra refined because it's not from Oregon Oregon certainly had more hops at this time than any other state in America hops and prohibition is sort of an interesting time so there were more hops grown in Oregon from 1922 to 1943 and kind of after the war that's when the the hops really start to move up to Washington. And then now I think Idaho grows a decent amount more than we do here in Oregon. The time around Prohibition, there were a lot of hops that were grown here. It took a lot of labor. So there's a lot of really interesting, there are a lot of interesting records and a lot of interesting advertisements for pickers. They they needed so many people that the, the, um, they were really diverse 
it was a really diverse labor force. So there were pickers from the city, there were pickers from the, the sort of like regional area of other farm workers. There were Chinese pickers, there were a, a handful of African American pickers, there were European pickers. During the war, during World War II, there were pickers who were POWs, and then there were pickers as the Japanese were put in internment camps, that's when the Braceros workers came up and the Braceros workers started picking in the fields too. So it's this really sort of fascinating time to have such a robust hops industry because you couldn't make beer. So during World War One, of course, there was a lot of destruction of agriculture. And so most of the hops in Oregon were actually exported, but it was not illegal to grow hops. So that any decrease in, in hops production during Prohibition was actually just because sometimes crops make more, <laughs> or sometimes plants make more. Um, so what yeah. did they so what did they use them for during Prohibition? You know, who would buy them? So they exported most of them. Most of them went to Europe. You can use hops for other stuff. I mean, people were also making alcohol, so it wasn't um, it wasn't entirely dry. But most of them were exported. I mean, people would put them, like, they, they were pretty common to come out, like, when people settled here. They brought hops, and they would be just something that you would grow in your kitchen garden. Hops, like, when they start to come up, they look like, kind of like little baby asparagus. And so people would eat those, that they would eat the early young shoots. The vines that grow, they're really, really, they're related to, to cannabis family. So they're related to and the vines are really, really strong. Like you can't, you can't pull them apart. Um, so they would use them for rope. And then the the cones themselves. I don't, I'm pointing like there are cones outside right now. The the cones, the cones could be put. They were dried and put in pillows. They have some calming effects. They would make tinctures out of them, like hop oil, hop tinctures, hop bitters that would save everything about I mean it was it was like one of those catch-all cure-all like but most of them were exported during prohibition so prohibition came early to Oregon there were local option laws so Corvallis where I am went dry in 1904 but often in Oregon I don't know if local options are unique to Oregon I would assume not the local option meant that you could have one town that was dry or one county that was dry and then the town or the county next door was not, you often got these like one dry, one wet areas. So Corvallis was dry, but Albany, which is like 10 miles away, was not. Eugene, where the U of O is, was dry, but Springfield, the town next door, was not. So there's this, this sort of fascinating, like technically these communities were voting against um, having alcohol in their communities, but like then people would just go to the next. Alcohol. <laughs> just seems um, like you're losing business. Yeah, they did weird things here. Like they would, like it was illegal to sell alcohol, so they would have these like subscription clubs. So they were um, like marketed to the young male students, and you could become a member of like a subscription club, and you paid your dues, and then you got to go drink there. But like technically, you weren't buying alcohol. You were just paying for your subscription. So, yeah, people people want their alcohol, but it definitely became like I, I was I was have sort of said over and over again this connection between 
vice and prohibition and the story of statehood and the story of women's suffrage, it's, it's definitely all intertwined in the same way that it is throughout much of the country. This photo that's on the right side is uh, from 1915 and is of prominent, uh, prominent temperance workers who had a stopover in Portland. They were on like a, 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 temperance, a temperance train and the woman who's looking at juice, so she's, you know, this, this concern that juice is being turned into alcohol is Mrs. Jenny Kemp, and she was the Temperance League president. This was, was definitely, it's a, it's a thing that makes me feel complicated inside because I like being able to vote, but I also think this kind of early tie between um, prohibition and temperance certainly alcohol was destroying families. I uh, don't know that prohibition was the thing that uh, saved people and uh, stopped all ill things from happening. But it is pretty, it's it's a big break for Oregon. And it's there are lots of these smaller breweries. This The influence of the transportation networks as the train came to certain places and didn't come to other places, that did start to have a, a kind of consolidation impact on the industry. But it's prohibition that wipes everything out. So the when um, the the larger facilities like Henry Weinhardt's or the Salem Brewing Association, they started to pivot. There were also you could make denatured alcohol. So there were some breweries that started making denatured alcohol. The breweries that had um, ice houses started just selling ice. But it definitely it it wipes it out completely. Wipes it out. The breweries that did survive. There were a couple of them. This is the the Salem Brewers Association pivoted, and the Salem Salem Brewers Association was owned by Leopold Schmidt, and he had breweries in Olympia and Salem and Bellingham, and he partnered with the Northwest Fruit Products in Salem and started marketing Loju, which was Loganberry juice. I can't even imagine how many people make cocktails with this. Like every time I see this, I think this sounds like a really good. They became the Fez, the Fez company, um, and this ad is, I think, from 1918, October 1918. So what's happening, um, they're uh, selling it as a cure um, or a product that you would need during a flu epidemic. So definitely you have beer companies really pivoting and trying to become um, healthy drink companies. Weinhardt started making Apo and Luxo. This is like this this ad is super fascinating for lots of different reasons. So Weinhardt pivots to really being very focused on being pure. The plant down in the bottom where it says the Henry Weinhardt's plant and you see what looks like a church steeple. Like I don't know what that is. That's not near like that doesn't exist. <laughs> that didn't exist. So it's this like like we're now rebranding something that's very safe for children, that it's absolute purity. It's it's a, a safe thing for, um, you know, we, we may have been the company of vice before, but now look how safe it is and how um, happy the children are um, to be drinking it. So it's this, this time, at, even after prohibition, there were literally a handful of, of um, companies left. Weinhardt's was one of them. The Salem Brewers Association was another. There, there was one other, and the, the name is escaping me now. Um, but it's there's nothing left. Like 
there. Um, it's just, it completely shuts down the industry for years. So Weinhardt continued to produce, not next to a church, but continued to produce, like I said, into the 1990s. It's not until the early 80s. This is Charles Corey, and he opened Cartwright Brewing in 1980. He'd owned a a winery. He was a vintner. He was part of that early crew who started planting Pinot Noir grapes in Oregon. He had a, a, a winery up in the Forest Grove area, and his wife opened Cartwright Brewing. It was only around for 13 months, 14 months, and the beer, he he tried to bottle, and that's where it sort of fell apart, um, because he was really, really inconsistent. There are pictures of his, of his operation, and it's like, now he probably would be incredibly successful, because people would be like, oh, it's farmhouse, this is great, it's so funky, but it was, people did not think that when what they were drinking was still very, very yellow. But he's part of this kind of next generation um, of who comes later. So he opens in in um, 1980 and closes <laughs> very soon after. But people like the Whitmers and Carl Okert. Actually, I don't know if Carl Okert. He was the brewer at Bridgeport. I don't know if he ever went. But the um, the guys who established Portland Brewing went. And it, it really was exciting to people who had done European traveling. And so it was part of this, like, let's care about our food. Let's think about stuff with flavor. His beer definitely had flavor. It was also more expensive. And so there was this, like, he was he was proof that people would pay a dollar a bottle, which was a lot in 1980. This is one of the bottles of beer I was telling you that we have um, one of the objects. This is the Cartwright Portland beer. It's the the beer that's inside of the bottle. It's clearly not good anymore. It has not aged in the last 40 years. It did not age well. It's very chunky inside. <laughs> and I just hope nobody ever drops it. So yes, this, this bottle of beer became part of the archives. But it definitely, it, it sets up this stage for what comes. These are, are four of the early brewers and it's a really exciting time for Oregon beer. The Bridgeport is down in the, the far left, um, and Bridgeport and Widmer and Portland Brewing, so that kind of L, they all opened within a few blocks of Henry Weinhardt's. It was an area that was zoned as industrial, so they could get buildings that had floor drains. So Bridgeport um, opened up in a rope factory. I'm not sure what, I think that the Widmers were in like what used to be a car dealership maybe and the portland brewing guys opened up in a creamery so they along with people like the widmer or the um the mcminiman lobbied for um something called the brew pub bill and this became really really important i think as we were talking earlier about why is it that that oregon became oregon like what what happened as far as oregon beer goes and what was the why did that happen? And I think one of the big reasons it happened is this brew pub bill, which was a bill that allowed the wineries could serve the wine that they made on site. So they had tasting rooms. Brewers couldn't do that. So brewers couldn't sell and produce on the same site. So the brew pub bill allowed them to do that. So they could have tap rooms, they could have restaurants. 
and it, it became a, a place where people could go. The group hub bill happened in 1985. Everything, not everything changed, but certainly that 1985, it was pivotal. At the same time, while there were lots of, uh, th- there was slow growth initially. So Rogue Ales opened, Full Sail Brewing opened, Deschutes opened kind of over the next 10 years. There's still a little brewery called um, Oregon Trail, and Oregon Trail opened in 1987, so the same year as Full Sail. And it's downtown here in Corvallis, and it's teeny, and like nothing has been updated since 1987. And it's like a step back into time, like it's like vertical, and so like everything literally goes like gravity helps it all. Um, it's just like I love going there because it's so like like how does this how does this brewery still exist? They also are like absolutely the training ground for brewers. Like brewers usually don't stay longer than a year, so they've had something like 36 brewers and whatever the like 32 years, 33 years. But there's this is a time of of great growth, and into the 1990s, there are lots of businesses that open. There are also lots of businesses that close. Something that that starts to happen in the 1990s in Oregon is the growth in homebrew clubs growth in organizations to support brewers. Fermentation program was not new. They'd certainly been doing fermentation research at OSU. But in 1995, a um, a brewing science focus was, the, the fermentation science was officially established as a program at OSU. That's really critical in training brewers who are really qualified. So at the point that OSU started, that program in 1995, the only other university program at that level, degree granting program, was at UC Davis. And so there weren't, there just wasn't higher education programs that would be sort of start to finish teach you how to do this. And now they started a master's program, master's and PhD program that same year. So now um, they graduate, not a huge class, um, but I would say at any given time, they probably have 15 or 20 graduate students. It's just impressive. I, it makes sense now that why Oregon became such a big craft beer scene, you know, with, yeah. the, with the bill. Yeah. You know, some states were still like 2010s, you know, they still couldn't have people drink at their brewery. Yeah. So it's something yeah. I never knew. And I, I, and I think the, they're, they're, again, this sort of like, I think of the land grant mission of an agricultural college that we have scientists who are doing research on hops and then inviting people to field days. They still have field days. I went to one. It was very, very weird. I was like, I'm in history. Then same thing with the, 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 um, the program, the fermentation science program here places graduates in really high level, technical, large corporate breweries, but also, uh, trains people to run these small local and regional breweries so i think it's yeah it's all part of i i also want to know if we have more festivals than everyone else i feel like there's so many festivals here um not this year <laughs> i that's one thing another one i should be like writing down my like the, all the things that i say in this interview that i want to do further research the other thing i want to do further research on is the history of festivals period like i one of the students in the beer history class said, what do you know about the history of festivals? And I'm like, well, like where? Like, <laughs> like here or in Germany or in South Africa? Like, <laughs> yeah, so 
the history of festivals. That's one that, yeah. I would be interested in that, too. Yeah, yeah. And the, like, yeah, who they're marketed to. The the Oregon Brewers Festival started in 1988, and this is the first year that it has not been held for all the obvious reasons. But there's also a festival of dark arts. There's a festival, um, the Holiday Ale Festival is another pretty popular one in Portland. There are organic beer festivals. There are home brewing beer festivals. I when I when I first started the archive, as I said, I presented at lots of different places, including old people's homes. But I also um, tried to have booths at festivals, which was really awesome until I, like I realized that people don't. My first festival was the September Fest here. And I was in the education area, and so there were, like, people next to me who were, like, from the watershed department or something, and they started packing up. And I was like, why are they packing up? Like, this is weird. We've only been here for two hours. There are two more hours. And then I realized that that was the point the festival turned, and it was a place where people were drunk. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's why people come here. So I always packed up after two hours. I want to end um, by talking about Fred, and Fred Eckert um, is another one of those people who I was lucky enough to meet him, but I think he's another reason why Portland and Oregon are so known for beer. He was a home brewer and he was an author, and he wrote about beer and wrote about style and wrote about taste, and he was he would write in the Oregonian newspaper. He also wrote for more um, traditional popular publications like All About Beer or Celebrator. He wrote books related to style and related to home brewing and he, he really wanted people to taste beer. Like it wasn't he he was he was not against busy yellow beer. Like I think he was like all beer has its place. Um, but he was really a translator. He, that was his his job was to he did lots of work on like food and beer pairings um did work with rogue for a long time on the chocolate and beer festival so he was he was really really into thinking about beer um in the same way that people thought about wine and we have his collection and and one of my favorite he, he kept all these notes which now i feel like now that i um, have everything exist in the same place I feel like oh I should date all of my notes because I really get mad that he didn't date all of his notes in his little notebook but he would take notes on everything and he would do stuff like um, if he went to a wine and beer tasting <laughs> the one where he cropped out all the wines that they were recommended and then like, recommending and then wrote in the beers that he would like to have instead so he's definitely he's a character who was really important, I think, more generally in beer. So he was at the first Great American Beer Festival. There are pictures of him with Charlie Papazian hanging out. And he was just sort of a, a delightful but also incredibly cranky and cantankerous people or person. Um, he was very particular. When I did my oral history with him, we did it um, at a restaurant, and I, I picked him up because there were a couple other people who were going to co-interview him. And he told me how to drive. Like, I'd never met him before, and he was telling me how to drive. And I was like, I'm driving Fred Eckhart. Like, it's probably fine. But I think he is set up beer journalism, too. Like, he's just, he's really important as somebody who made it possible for people to write about beer and to have it be something that is ex- 
accessible and approachable and understandable and that it, it was it was very um, community oriented and I think he he certainly he gave people time and gave people space to think about beer as something more than just something to get drunk on yeah yeah so we have lots of collections there's lots of history and this is what I ended with I like I cracked myself up this was like when I I was like this is the hard sell that I had yes archivists want your stuff it's true it's true (laughs) questions besides like that like I kind of uh blazed through all of the craft stuff so if you it's it's hard to really great uh, lighting control here with the shade (laughs) it's a hard history I think to tell concisely I think there's there certainly is a lot of overlap I feel like I'm learning more about the overlap but it's a very different Oregon is a very very different place Um, and I will be curious to see kind of what survives out the other end of this. I think even before everything shut down several months ago, three months ago, the beer industry was just, it was struggling a bit, I think, to try to figure out, it, it for a while had been trying to be all things to all people. And, um, you know, do we now make hard sodas? Do we now um, add CBD to stuff? Like, I think it was that kind of medium-sized Deschutes and Widmer isn't really medium sized, but Bridgeport, I think they, they it, it was hard for them. It is hard for them to find their place in this. Um, yeah, everyone so keeps talking about how, you know, I guess it's still going up, but everyone's predicting that the number of breweries are going to be going down soon. I mean, the pandemic's probably going to assist that, but mm-hmm. um, it is going to be interesting to see how many last because even during the pandemic, I still see some opening. Yeah. So it's just, it's really interesting. It is really interesting. There's, I, I just read like an hour before we started talking, there's a brewery downtown called Flattail and they were like, this is almost exactly their 10 year anniversary and they're, they were leasing the building and the person who was leasing the building said, nope, your lease is now revoked. And so they're like out of business. I think they'll, hopefully they'll find a place to land, but, um, you know, these, I think rents are a big deal. I think cost of space is a big deal. I think the places that weren't reliant on restaurants will probably do a lot better. I think that's that's something that I've noticed is that the businesses, even before the pandemic shut stuff down, the businesses that were really reliant on the, the restaurant and the food, that the food caught, that sometimes it seems like they tried, again, to be all things to all people. The restaurants were the things that closed. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's certainly, it's a hard time to be an archivist in a way. I'm not, like like I said, you know, this is my hard sell. <laughs> I think it, it is, it's hard to be in the midst of history happening. I think that is, even before the pandemic, that was what was happening. I think it just, it's... Portland still has more breweries, but it's it's expensive to live there. Yeah, it's expensive to live there. It's expensive to operate there. And I don't know that, I mean, I think areas like south, Southeast Oregon, I just think the, the tourism and the population just, I don't, I, there aren't that many breweries and I don't know that there ever will be. Like, I don't, I, mean, I shouldn't say that. I have no idea. But like, I think the people who are, are attracted to that area, the demographic of that area, I just, I don't think it's not been. <laughs> Though Bend wasn't Bend 20 years ago either. Right. I guess you can just never tell, like, 
where is where is the next great craft beer city? I think there was this sort of interesting thing that was happening three or four years ago where brewers were breweries were trying to open up, you know, midway so that they like there were the breweries that were opening up in North Carolina or Virginia which I guess are not midway in, in my mind. This is like my total West Coast. Like, I don't know. I mean, everything, you know, it's like the stuff over there. And I think that really overextended a lot of people. I think Deschutes is a great example. They tried to go into Roanoke and it just, it the, the growth wasn't going to happen for them in the way that would make that a possibility. And then it kind of dilutes what you can focus on. Yeah, I think it's interesting when people do that, like New Belgium went down to um, Asheville, but I feel like people drink the beer because it's local, you know, so you're trying to make it local now in multiple locations, which I think most people might catch on and just think you're just trying to mm-hmm. make more money. Yeah, which is sort of funny. It's like that that Mason steam beer ad that I showed you, you know, like that that was not local, but they were kind of trying to pretend like they were local too and like. Yeah, so I guess they've been doing it for hundreds of years. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, thank you very much. I look forward to hearing the end result.